Tyranny, tyranny everywhere, folks. Welcome. This is Eurofolk Radio, Pastor Eli James, and this is Bloodlines. No Michael today. He's off moose hunting somewhere in the north of Sweden. So uh, at least uh, Michael is not letting the coronavirus pandemic uh, ruin his lifestyle. So he's up moose hunting. And we'll find out next week whether he bagged any moose or not, or anything, or or some moose bagged him. Right? Uh, moose are dangerous animals, uh, so you don't want to be confronted directly with a moose. They've been known to kill people. Anyway, uh, so today's show is going to be uh, rather unusual. We're going to investigate the uh, Tell El Amarna letters because. Uh, we just put up on Eurofolk Radio. The link is in the chat room, and you can go to Eurofolk Radio at any point and uh, watch the two videos uh, that I just uh, posted uh, today. And the the uh, title of the link is Amenhotep II confirmed as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and uh, we have been talking about these things off and on on various shows here at Eurofolk Radio, that, of course, the Exodus story is 100% historical fact, that all the deniers now are being proven wrong. They've got egg on their face. These two videos that are posted in this link, and uh, be sure to watch these uh, uh, at your earliest convenience. The first one is called Digging for Truth, Amenhotep II as Pharaoh of the Exodus Part 1, and... Digging for Truth, Amenhotep II as Pharaoh of the Exodus, Part Two, and uh, Douglas Petrovich, Ph.D., and uh, he's the guy, I guess, who's uh, doing the digging. <laughs> All right, but but folks, this just confirms this uh, recent archaeological study just confirms the work of Mrs. Sidney Bristow, author of. Sargon the Magnificent, okay? Well, a very, very famous text within Christian identity uh, in which she argues that Cain became the first ruler, or Sar, Sargon, it means King Cain. Sargon means King Cain. The title Sar still exists, or existed until the uh, early, very early 20th century when the Tsar of Russia was dethroned. So uh, King Cain is what that means. Anyway, she argues that uh, Cain founded Sumeria or was the first king of Sumeria. Sumeria may have existed well before that. Anyway, the Bible tells us that Cain was uh, kicked out to the east, the so-called land of Nod, land of wandering. And there he built a city. Well, there were people there already. There were people there already. Why would you build a city for just yourself and some woman, unidentified woman? Uh, you don't need a city for just two people. No, there were people there already. He built a city. And Sydney, Mrs. Sidney Bristow argues that Cain was none other than the first, Sargon the Magnificent, uh, first king of Sumeria, So, and a very warlike king at that. Anyway, she wrote another book. And I'd like you to open the link to this book. And uh, the link is in the chat room. And it's called The Armana, The Oldest Letters 
in the world. She's not talking about letters as in A, B, C, D, E. She's talking about the letters retrieved at Tel El Amarna in Egypt, which have to do with, actually, the time frame is perfect for the invasion of Canaan land by Joshua. The invasion of Canaan land by Joshua. The Tel El Amarna letters prove conclusively that all of this is historical fact. Yeah, uh, no, no, yeah, Mises. <laughs> the plural of moose is Mises. I hate you. Oh, no, that's mice. I hate you, Mises, to pieces. So there must be some other <laughs> mooses. Anyway, folks, uh, we're going to have fun today because the Bible is being confirmed by archaeology, as it always has been. There has never been one piece of archaeological evidence that has not, relating to the Bible, that has not confirmed the Bible. And we have all these skeptics, uh, skeptics, (laughs) skeptics, Mises, who have been denying the legitimacy and the truth of the Bible for centuries, but every piece of archaeological evidence has always confirmed the Bible bar none. Okay? And that's just the way it is. The Bible is true, and every skeptic is a liar. And this book, the Amarna Tablets, or the oldest letters in the world by Mrs. Sidney Bristow, proves that uh, they were. she was already on to something a hundred years before these people who are today confirming the Amarna letters. So she wrote this book about the Amarna letters sometime in the 1920s. Uh, I don't have the uh, exact date of publication. It doesn't show it. in, But uh, this is a free online version of that book, which I have, uh, I have a, a literal, a physical copy of it. And I have quoted from it uh, on previous shows. But now this book becomes even more important because her writings have been confirmed by uh, the, this uh, just two pair of videos that uh, are on YouTube right now. Okay, so I'm just going to start with chapter one and uh, try to get into some of the uh, you know his, history as it pertains to the tribes of Israel. Of course, she is a CI author. Of course, nobody was called Christian identity you know in the 1920s. Maybe in, in her case, it was uh, British Israel. But she's one of the best uh, historians of the Israelites uh, that ever lived, okay? So here we go. The Amarna Tablets, Chapter 1. And she quotes Samuel Johnson, I considered that a portion of the truth had been entrusted to me. I have given my opinion sincerely. Let them tell me where they think me wrong. Uh, That's a very concise statement of prove me wrong. In this new interpretation of the celebrated Amarna tablets, several distinguished authorities are quoted, their statements are criticized and even contradicted. To justify those criticisms and contradictions, I must explain my conviction that in dealing with the Amarna tablets, we come up against the mystery of the Hebrew race, and that because those authorities have not realized that fact... They have not rightly interpreted the Amarna tablets. Now, in general, what she is saying in this book is that the Amarna tablets are correspondence between the Egyptian pharaoh and, of course, his military 
and the Canaanites. But there's also a, some. Uh, there's also a, a the Mitanni who are not referred to as Mitanni uh, by these scholars or by by these uh, letters. Uh, but she makes a, uh, a what we today would call the Syrians, who in fact were allies of the Israelites, but uh, the, this uh, alliance was denied by their king because he didn't want to antagonize the uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Okay, so there was all kinds of politicking going on at this time, and. Some of these scholars have failed to notice that you know when, if, when you write a letter to a, a king who is trying to hold you under subjection, you you make nice nice in your letters and you pretend to be his ally, and when you're fa- in fact not. Mrs. Sidney Bristow has seen through this type of language, whereas the vast majority of archaeologists of of this category have not seen through it. Okay, that's because she's a real identity and, and takes all this seriously, folks. Okay, so continuing, she says, they, uh, they have missed these various facts. Because I have used that key where they have not done so, my interpretation is different from theirs. She's equating the um, Amarna tablets with the time period that the uh, Israelites invaded Canaan land. And uh, unfortunately, the Israelites are referred to by different names in the letters because they, in many cases, the Canaanite people were not sure who were, who were they, they being invaded by. They, they, who's Joshua? They didn't know who Joshua was. Uh, who are the Habiru? Who are the Israelites? These, they, you know, all of a sudden they find themselves under assault from the east. Now, the interesting thing is she points out in this book very carefully and succinctly that the Canaanites were under the subjection of the Egyptians at this point in time. And that after the Exodus... Egypt lost all of its slaves, or virtually all of its slaves, so that the Egyptians launched a campaign in November. This was Amenhotep II, which is very unusual in the ancient world, because you're still talking about the Northern Hemisphere here, and you don't launch campaigns in November. All campaigns are launched in the spring, when you can uh, reap the fields of their winter wheat, etc., etc., and get fruits and vegetables for your army as you're marching along, you can't do that in November. So this is unheard of, absolutely unheard of. Yet, Amenhotep II launched this campaign in November. Why? Because the Egyptians had lost all of their Israelite slaves, and those slaves had to be replaced. Well, who would they be replaced by? Canaanites, because they needed all that work. Then the Canaanites were already subject to the Egyptians, as we will find out. So all of this makes absolutely perfect sense. The two videos that are posted right now on the front page of Eurofolk Radio also confirm this, that this invasion was done in November 
which is very unusual, one of the only invasions uh, in the Middle East uh, that was started in November. In fact, the only one. So, but uh, this explains why. Okay, so again, everything about this proves the historicity of the Exodus narrative in Scripture. Praise Yahweh. We are, we are proving to the world that the Bible is true and every, every liar is a liar. Every skeptic is a liar. All right, so let's continue. Uh, I'm not sure what page I'm on here. Uh, okay, I'm at page 14. She continues. Now, very important, very, very important on page 14, which is uh, open face two pages here in, uh, on this Internet Archive version. The link is in the chat room if you want to open it up. Okay. So, uh, for example, according to their interpretation, the Phoenicians, who I propose to show were Hebrews, undoubtedly the most daring and enterprising people of ancient times were Canaanites. Okay. So, she, she distinguishes the Phoenicians uh, as Hebrews, where just about all other scholars say they are Canaanites. And we have told you already in the past that the Phoenician ships were manned by Israelite seamen. And we have told you in the past that the uh, Canaanites were not seafarers. The Jews don't know from seafaring, not even rowboats. Okay? And, of course, the Canaanites are proto-Jews. Edomites, who are eventually becoming the Edomites, who are, of course, the enemies of Israel. But uh, the most the northernmost tribes of Israel, uh, Dan, Asher, and uh, I forget the couple others, who took the northernmost territory, conquered Phoenicia, and they were still known as Phoenicians after that. Okay? Uh, and all scholars of Hebrew and uh, Phoenician agree that Phoenician and Hebrew are 100% the same. So where the Phoenicians get their language from? Who came first? The Hebrews or the Phoenicians? Folks, it's so obvious, if you know the scriptures, what the truth is. So she is absolutely right. She identifies the Phoenicians as Israelites. Okay? So anyway, let's continue. Uh, whereas, according to the Bible, the Canaanites were an inferior race. Yes, they were. According to Noah's prophecy, they were to be servants of servants, a slave race. The Canaanites of the Bible could never have become the great seafaring, exploring, conquering, colonizing Phoenicians. Can you picture Jews doing all these things? I don't think so. The historical importance of showing that the Phoenicians were Hebrews and the greater importance of proving that upon this and several other questions, the Amarna tablets not only harmonize with, but also throw new light upon the Bible, might in themselves justify the following somewhat controversial pages. But their chief justification to some minds must be their effort to show by striking example because the Bible records have been ignored when they have seemed to contradict monumental inscriptions, the meaning of those inscriptions has often been misunderstood. And, of course, there was tremendous skepticism about the Bible in the latter half of the 19th century and throughout the entire 20th century by skeptics who could not believe that the Bible was true and their uh, view of the ancient world false. They could not believe that, okay? But 
with the advent of computers and computerized archaeology and astroarchaeology, comparing records of times of the ancient world with the, with the Bible, we find that the Bible has been vindicated in every case. She continues, If these pages run counter to the opinions of leading Egyptologists, it is, I contend, because the Amarna tablets elucidated by the Bible throw a powerful light, hitherto unsuspected, upon Egyptian history of the period to which they belong, that of the 18th dynasty to which are ascribed the treasures recently discovered at Thebes. Okay, so Mrs. Sidney Bristow was on top of this. The two videos up on the, on the post are 100 years later, and they're just discovering it. So, But they probably never heard of Mrs. Sidney Bristow. Let's continue. The Amarna tablets, possibly the oldest and certainly some of the most authentic historical documents in the world, were discovered accidentally at Tel El Amarna in Egypt in the year 1887. Among the ruins of the palace of Amenhotep IV, the so-called heretic king, to whom most of them were written about 3,400 years ago. The historical information given by the Amarna tablets is involuntary and therefore unbiased. The cuneiform inscriptions upon the brick tablets are letters from Canaanitish rulers of Palestine or from kings of foreign countries. Okay, but primarily the Canaanitish kings or local rulers of the various Canaanite tribes. You cannot conceive of the Canaanites as being a unified uh, force. They were you know, fighting amongst themselves uh, very often as well. But at this point in time, the Canaanites were under the dominion of the Egyptians, paying tribute to the Egyptians, and occasionally the Egyptians took slave people from among them. Okay, well, let's continue. They are written simply as a man-to-man, Differing in this from all other ancient inscriptions which are written in the baffling jargon of the priests. And not only ring false, but can often be proved to be false. Okay, so Mrs. Bristow is hip to the fact that a lot of these uh, diplomatic letters contain false information and uh, tremendous amounts of flattery, etc., etc. Okay, and the secular uh, Egyptologists... uh, simply do not get this. It just doesn't get it. These facts make the Amarna tablets the most valuable ancient inscriptions we possess. Probably no more trustworthy history of any period exists than that to be gathered from them of the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Because these are basically, uh, you know, uh, correspondence between uh, the king of Egypt and the various emissaries he had all over the place in Canaan land and other places, and from the various foreign leaders such as the Canaanites and the Syrians. Let's continue. Towards the end of which dynasty the conquest of Palestine by the Israelites is now known to have taken place. About 300 of the Amarna tablets have been brought to Europe. Some are in the British Museum. Many of the most important are in Berlin. The cuneiform inscriptions upon them have been translated into English and German and published. They are therefore open to anyone's inspection. The merest amateur may from his own conclusions form his own conclusions from them. The result of such an inquiry is given in this paper. The great importance of the Amarna tablets has not been recognized because apparently the translators have been unwilling to flip the page and scroll back up. Admit 
that the Israelites are mentioned upon them and that they tell of the conquest of Palestine by Joshua. Wow. Why didn't they want to admit this? Because they thought the Bible was a bunch of fairy tales. That's why scholarship in those days was already biased against Scripture. She continues, This translation shows, shown with the tablets now in the British Museum, give little idea of the interest of the letters. The name Haberi, Kaberi, or Aberi is hardly seen in those translations, and even if it is, it's usually Apiru, A-P-I-R-U, meaning the Hebrews. Uh, is hardly seen in the translations. Philologists, yet the name appears frequently in the tablets, and leading philologists certify that it stands for the Hebrews. The philologists certify that it means the Hebrews, but the Egyptologists don't want to namely the Israelites. See Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, edition 2, volume 10, page 78. Another name mentioned upon the tablets is Saga. Who does that remind you of? Saka? Saxons? Which is said to be identical with Haberi. Okay, yeah, the Saxons and the Israelites are very much related. Not all Saxons are Israelites, but all Israelites are Saxons, and is proved to be so by the fact that it occurs upon the Behistun rock in Persia, where, according to Sir Henry Rawlinson, it represents the Israelites, the Sakai, or the House of Isaac. Thank you very much, Mrs. Sidney Bristow. Dr. Hall of the British Museum admits the fact that the tablets will tell of the Israelites' conquest of Palestine. So some of them have figured it out. For he writes, quote, we may, we may definitely, if we accept the identification of the Habiru as the Hebrews, say that in the Tel El Amarna letters we have Joshua's conquest seen from the Egyptian and Canaanite point of view from his book, Ancient History of the Near East. I'm thrilled with all of these developments, folks, because it proves the Bible to be true yet again. Dr. Hall's, now, of course, these people... Uh, although I think Mrs. Sidney Bristow understood who the Hebrews and the Saxons are, and they're not Jews, most of these other authors, the secular authors and other archaeologists would automatically assume, uh, identify the Jews with these Hebrews and Israelites we know better. Okay, so continuing, Dr. Hall's dates do not agree with those given in the Bible for that event. He gives the years circa 1380 to 1362 for the reign of Amenhotep IV, in whose lifetime Joshua's conquest of Palestine took place. Major Condor, whose book published for the Palestine Exploration Society, I largely quote from, says, however, quote, The date of the letters is exactly that which is to be derived from the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, I guess. For the Hebrew invasion, according to the Hebrew and Vulgate text, the Septuagint makes it 40 years later, and it agrees with the fact that the Egyptian conquests in Palestine, made by the 18th dynasty, 1700 to 1600 BC, had been lost when the 19th dynasty acceded. Okay, so Major Condor is pro-Bible, and most of the others are not. 
Although it is now generally admitted that the Amarna letters tell of Joshua's conquest of southern Palestine, it has not been suggested that he also conquered Phoenicia, the northwest coast of Palestine, upon which the cities of Tyre and Sidon were situated. On the contrary, the tablets are believed to show that while the Israelites were conquering southern Palestine, the cities of Phoenicia were conquered by Canaanites of the Amorite branch of that race. Major Condor writes, Amorites conquered all Phoenicia and besieged Tyre. Now, here is a, a misidentification. Uh, what uh, Very often, people are referred to not by their racial name, but by the territory which they inhabit. So, these northern Canaanites assumed they were being attacked by Amorites when they were actually being attacked by Israelites. Okay, so they've applied a territorial name to the Israelites who were attacking northern Palestine. And that is uh, the conclusion that uh, Mrs. Sidney Bristow comes to later on. Let's continue. Since the Amorites were Canaanites like the inhabitants of Phoenicia, whom they were conquering, Major Condor's reading of the tablet suggests that although the southern cities of Palestine were being conquered about that time by the Israelites, the Canaanites in the northern Palestine were indulging in civil war. Now she finds this civil war argument to be untenable. The theory of this strange situation in... Oops, I'm sorry folks, I just lost my page. Scroll back up. The theory of this strange situation in Palestine has been accepted by the translators, and Bible commentators still tell us that the Israelites never conquered Tyre and Sidon, and that the Phoenicians who inhabited those cities were Canaanites. So in other words, the the secular analysts are telling us this was a civil war among, among Canaanites, which would be very odd, especially at this point in time when they were being attacked by Egypt. That just doesn't make sense. You know, it's possible, but it doesn't make sense. Reading between the lines, however, I conclude from the tablets that the people called Amorites by the Canaanites rulers in their letters to Amenhotep IV of Egypt and who are described as conquering Phoenicia were really Israelites who, for reasons to be explained later, were called Amorites by the Canaanites who were the first inhabitants of that land. So it was just a misidentification, which is very common, in Old Testament times. Okay, you describe people from the territory they came from, like uh, if the tribe of uh, Illini Indians <laughs> attacked Missouri, <laughs> they would be, not be called Illini, they would be called Indians, all right? Who, who knows where they came from? But they came from Illinois. Okay, so again, she she understands that misidentification of people is a frequent occurrence in Old Testament times by modern historians. Most of the Amarna letters were written to Amenhotep IV, the last and best known to us of the three so-called heretic kings. He has been described as the first individual in ancient history, a philosophic and artistic reformer, the first doctrinaire in history, and a poet king. Hall's Ancient History, page 298. Amenhotep IV, Duzrada of Mitanni, his father-in-law, and Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, are the men about whom the Amarna tablets have much to tell, 
and about whom they clear away several misconceptions while the pagan priests of Amenhotep's and of Dorada's countries are the false witnesses to whom the tablets unmask. So Dusrata, she says, of Mitanni was the father-in-law of Amenhotep IV. In other words, Amenhotep IV took a Syrian wife of our race. And of course, the Egyptians were of our race too, because they were Hamites, and the Syrians were Shemites, and the Japhethites uh, became known primarily as the Greeks, and, and of course, uh, the uh, Slavs. Let's continue. So the big historical, I have to turn the page, give me a second here. The big historical problems the tablets help to solve are those of the origin of the Phoenicians and the identity of the people who formed what has been called the Great Hittite Empire. Again, uh, historians have misidentified some of the Hittites who were in fact labeled uh, Phoenicians, who were in fact Israelites. At the time of the Amarna tablets were written, the country now known as Palestine, including the narrow strip of coastland known later as Phoenicia, was inhabited by Canaanites. Yeah, it was inhabited. It is called Kenahi or Kenatuna, of course, Canaan, Canaan, Canaanites, in the Amarna letters and the land of Canaan in the Bible. The Canaanite inhabitants of that land had been conquered by the early kings of the 18th Egyptian dynasty, and when Amenhotep IV came to the throne, Palestine was in much the same position as we gather from the Amarna letters, that India now is under British government. <laughs> okay, uh, so wow, this is uh, you know, an old book, right? India was still in, in occupation uh, by uh, Britain. But here we see the misidentification of peoples is being clarified by Mrs. Sidney Bristow and her analysis is totally confirmed by these two videos now up on the front page of Eurofolk Radio. I highly recommend that you watch those too because it proves the Bible to be true, 100%, okay? And because Egyptologists have failed to identify up until now, although she does an excellent job of confirming that it was Amenhotep II, or fourth, uh, uh, it's been a while since I've read this. Uh, I forget who she exactly identifies as the uh, pharaoh of the Exodus. But we'll, we'll try to clear that up during this show. Anyway, okay, the Egyptian king's empire was bounded in Palestine by the Jordan on the east, the Mediterranean Sea on the west, and on the north by the possessions of his father-in-law, Dusrada of Mitanni, who I hope to show owed a great empire, owned a great empire on the north, northeast and northwest of Palestine. Dr. Erman writes, speaking of the Egyptian conquest of Palestine, that, quote, Egypt became the neighbor of Mitanni on the Euphrates of Assyria and of Babylon. Those three countries were, according to Hall, probably ruled over by Desrata. So Desrata was a major king. The Mitanni, many of the historians are unsure of who the Mitanni are, but they were obviously Shemites. The Mitanni were Shemites, and Desrata was their king at this time. The tablets show that there was, in each of the Canaanitish cities of Palestine, as well as a native ruler or king, an Egyptian official called, according to Major Condor, a Paka, 
who was presumably placed there to guard the Egyptian interests, much as a British resident is placed in the Indian states today. Okay, she's talking about East India, not America. So here we have a situation uh, which is actually very relevant to, to Scripture again, because Rahab, who is falsely identified as, a, uh, as a, either an innkeeper or a harlot, was actually the wife of an Egyptian emissary, namely the Paka, in, in that time. And this is why the uh, spies of Joshua were friendly with her, because she was, in fact, a descendant of Ephraim. She was an Ephraimite. Now, she happened to be married to an Egyptian at the time, as I understand it. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, she's uh, our Savior, Yahshua Messiah, is in her bloodline. She was an Ephraimite. And so the, the bloodline is kept pure with pure white. She is an Ephraimite who possibly had a Hamitic uh, husband. Whether or not she had children by that husband, I don't know. But she is definitely in the line of our Messiah. She was not a whore. She was not an innkeeper. She was the wife of the Egyptian embassy or Paka. She was the wife of the Paka. Very high status, and there's no way any Canaanite would dare to invade the Egyptian embassy in that territory. This is why she harbored the Israelite spies and was not punished about that by the, by the Canaanites. Okay, let's continue. Dr. Ehrmann writes, uh, which in German means honorable man, Dr. Ehrmann writes, speaking of the Egyptian conquest of Palestine, that, quote, Egypt became the neighbor of Mitanni on the Euphrates of Assyria and of Babylon. Those three countries were, according to Dr. Hall, probably ruled over by Dusrata. So a huge empire of the Mitanni, obviously Shemites. The tablets show that there was in each of the Canaanitish cities of Palestine, as well as a native ruler or king, an Egyptian official called to, by Major Condor Apaka, who was presumably placed there to guard the Egyptian interests, much as the British resident placed on Indian states today. In the re reign of Amenhotep III, the Canaanites had plotted against their Egyptian masters, which fact his son, Amenhotep IV, knew for among his correspondence upon one of the Amarna tablets is a letter from the king of Babylon telling him how the Canaanites had tried some years earlier, and this king of Babylon may also be Dizrata again, before to persuade the Babylonians to join with them against Egypt. So the Canaanites were trying to persuade Dizrata to join their side against Egypt. Another letter from the same king of Babylon warns Amenhotep IV against the Habiru, the Israelites, who were invading Palestine at that time. He writes, quote, Canaan is your land. You are the king. I have been violently dealt with in your land. Subdue them. If you do not kill those people, they will come again in my caravans, and even your messengers they will kill. The trade between us will be cut off, and the land's inhabitants will become hostile to you, unquote. Winkler, Amarna, Tablets. Okay, so probably, for, now, 
Duzrata was not allied with the Israelites at this time. Mitana, the kingdom of Mitanni uh, disintegrated at some point after this. Uh, but nevertheless, Syria is in the territory of Mitanni at this time. Continuing. The fact that the land's inhabitants, the Canaanites, were so ready to become hostile to the Egyptians is one to be remembered. It extenuates the apparent cruelty of that which, as we shall see, was Amenhotep's policy. Most of the Amarna letters are from the Canaanite rulers of Palestine begging Amenhotep to protect them from the Habiri who were conquering their cities. Okay, so all these letters prove conclusively that the uh, invasion by Joshua and the Israelites is 100% historical. Professor Winkler gives a letter in which the Canaanitish ruler writes to Amenhotep, quote, Why are you favorable to the chiefs of the Haberi and unfavorable to the native feudal princes? Indeed, why aren't you protecting us from these Habiru? The Canaanite ruler of Jerusalem writes to Amenhotep, Behold, I say, the land of the king, my lord, is ruined. The Haberi plundered the king's land. Let the king hear. Will he not order Egyptian soldiers? And because there are no Egyptian soldiers, the king's land has rebelled to the chiefs of the tribe of the Haberu. Translated by Condor in the Amarna Tablets. Now, we know because of the fact that Egypt had lost all of its slaves and virtually all of its military. Remember, they followed the Israelites to the Sea of Reeds and they virtually all of them drowned. So Egypt had a really depleted military and virtually lost all of their slaves. So Egypt was in a very serious predicament. Again, (laughs) this is history, folks. Biblical history finally explained. Okay, yeah, and Swamp Fox just put in a link to Far Above Rubies by, um, oh, I forget the name of the author, another uh, Christian Israelite woman. The Truth About Ruth is contained in that book, and also uh, the episode about Rahab being a, uh, a descendant of Ephraim is contained in that book as well. Uh, there was uh, an attempt by the Ephraimites to... Uh, jump the gun, so to speak, and invade Canaan land before Joshua. And uh, and Rahab was a descendant of that earliest invasion, okay? That invasion failed, and it, it had to wait because it, it, it messed up Yahweh's timing. He wanted that invasion to take place under Joshua, not under uh, the tribe of Ephraim in those days. But uh, she points out that Rahab was definitely a daughter of Ephraim. Let's continue. This historical work is, uh, again, uh, coming to light in these latter days. And boy, are are these latter, we're just about out of days altogether. Okay. So, okay, we're picking up. Okay. The people who were rebelling to the... uh, to the Haberi may have been the Gibeonites of whom we read in the 10th chapter of Joshua, where the king of Jerusalem calls upon other kings of Palestine to smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. 
According to uh, Major Condor, the ruler of Jerusalem's name upon the tablets is, I have to turn the page, the suspense grows, is Adonazedek, as it is in the Bible. A striking excuse is made by the same king for failing to successfully resist the Habiru. He writes, quote, Lo, the king will be just to me because the chiefs of the Habiru are sorcerers, unquote. Probably Adon- Adonazek had just heard of the fall of the walls of Jericho and of the miraculous dividing of the waters of the Jordan. The Aramaic word for sorcerer is kasapi, according to Major Condor, and Kasawi, according to Professor Knutson, Amarna Tafeln, page 86.4. This shows its relation to the Hebrew's word for sorcerer, which is kashaf, Young's Analytical Concordance. Adonizek's sentences become despairing. He says, quote, I am breaking in pieces. Let the king pluck his land from the men of blood. I say to the Paka of the king, my lord, why should you tremble before the chiefs of the Habiri? Well, the, the chiefs of the Habiri, well, Yahweh had just destroyed Egypt on behalf of the Habiri. Do you think the, the, the Amenhotep is going to uh, try to assault the Israelites? I don't think so, folks. And you relinquish the lands to men of blood, squandering the wealth of all the lands. They have torn away sons and daughters, and this while the king is pondering about it. What are you waiting for? Save us! Major Condor's expression, quote, men of blood, is his rather mystifying translations of Amiluti Saga, people of the saga. Well, yeah, that's a horrible translation. Saxons! Which words other authorities translate Habiri. Well, they should have translated it Saxon, but that was too far out of their concept of reality at this time, folks. We know better. Again, the ruler of Jerusalem writes, quote, Since the Egyptian troops have gone away, quitting the lands of the king, my lord, let him be kind and let the king regard the entreaties. So all of these entreaties to Amenhotep IV were in vain because they didn't realize he ha- hardly had an army. He had to create an army to invade Canaan land to, to grab slaves. That was the situation Egypt was in at this time. The king of Egypt did not regard his entreaties or those of other Canaanite rulers. The letters make that clear. They state, as Major Condor remarks, that the Egyptian troops had been withdrawn from Palestine in the year that the Israelites came out of the desert. Make sense? Another ruler reasons with Amenhotep, he says, Behold, thy fathers did not ring, did not smite the land of his rulers and the gods established. The rest of his sentence is lost. He seems to have suspected the king of Egypt of conspiring against his own subjects, with how much reason the letters show. Almost rebellious remonstrances seem to be wrung from the despairing rulers of the Canaanites, such as, Let the king rescue the land from the Haberi, or send chariots to rescue the loyal. Why is then this overthrow of thy land? My destroyers exult in the face of my lord the king. He is left like the ant whose home is destroyed. Whoa! 
That's a slap in the face to the uh, Egyptian ruler. Condor, page 126. By the way, Condor's book is available for free on the internet as well. Another ruler writes, quote, Behold, the king lets slip from his hand the chief city, which is faithful to him. Moreover, I send for men of garrison and for horses, but you care not for us. The city is perishing. My Lord has pronounced our death, unquote. They did not realize that uh, Egypt had no army left. And even if they wanted to, they couldn't rescue the Canaanites. Very suggestively, the ruler of Gebal says, quote, it, is not, it is not granted to my sons to take root for me. As the prophets have perceived of all, the race of the foe will remain. <laughs> okay, uh, The ruler of Gebal. Well, if they're Canaanites, they were also Edomites. Because uh, Esau had already married into the Hittites. And uh, Esau would have known of the prophecies. Okay. The Canaanite ruler probably refers to the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants, the Israelites, should possess Palestine. The ruler may have recognized the fulfillment of that promise before his very eyes. It's wonderful when we see prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. A woman calling herself, quote, the Lady of Basmatu, thy handmaid, writes to Amenhotep, quote, At the feet of the king, my lord, my god, my son, seven times and seven times I bow. No, O king, my lord, there has been war in the land, and the land of the king, my lord, has been wearied by, by rebels, by men of blood. Again, that's Saxons. The lady Basmatu was evidently flying for her life. She ends, quote, Am not I tired marching to the town of Albuba? And because of not resting, O king, my lord, unquote. To all these entreaties and remonstrances, the king of Egypt was deaf. Although the Canaanite cities of Palestine were tributary to him and must have been a source of great wealth to him, he simply left them and his unhappy subjects in them to their fate. Why? Because he had no army to continue to possess them. Why was this? His motive deserves investigation. He and the Amarna tablets are mutually illuminating. Okay, turning to page 22, chapter 2. What was Amenhotep's religion? Major Condor offers no explanation of Amenhotep's strange behavior in allowing the Israelites to take possession of his cities in Palestine. Dr. Hall attributes it to the king's ignorance and incapacity. I wouldn't say ignorance, but certainly incapacity. Professor Petri, all who also publishes the Amarna letters, thinks that his domestic affairs monopolize his attention. Yeah, he had no army and he had no slaves. He says, quote, having openly broken with the traditions of his youth, Amenhotep threw all his energies into domestic reforms and abandoned foreign politics with disastrous results, unquote. This is an assumption by Mr. Petrie uh, in an attempt to explain. He does not realize that Amenhotep was the pharaoh of the Exodus and his kingdom was tremendously weakened. And that's why he abandoned foreign politics. What Amenhotep's, quote, domestic reforms were, the Times history tells us, it says, quote, his religious fanaticism got the better of his prudence. The cult of the god Amen was forbidden and his name erased wherever it could be reached. 
the pure Egyptians disappeared from the king's entourage, giving place to Asiatic personages. This might have been the uh, so-called Hyksos. The Thebes, consecrated to the fallen god, lost its rank of capital, and the king built a new capital at Tel El Amarna from Times History, Volume 1, page 139. The the two videos also talk about the Hyksos being contemporary with the Israelites, although a different tribe altogether, not, not related to the Israelites. Let's continue. These were drastic reforms, surely betokening a radical change of heart. According to the Times history, the religion which Amenhotep imbibed from his mother was the worship of the sun disk. Can we believe this? Now, I'm not sure if this is the uh, woman who was a Syrian or of uh, the daughter of Dusrata. If we're talking about the same woman here who became an Egyptian queen. But let's continue. The sun was always mixed up with the Egyptian religion. The sun of the sun, that is S-O-N of the S-U-N, was, according to the inscriptions, one of the hereditary titles of the Egyptian kings, and the sun is sometimes connected in those inscriptions with the Egyptian god Osiris. Is it likely that because Amenhotep worshipped the sun in some new fashion, that the Egyptian priests would have hated him? (laughs) Okay, how many different sun disk symbols do you need and have described him on the monuments over which they are known to have had control as the heretic king and as that criminal of Akhenaten? Now, could this be mere speculation on the part of Egyptologists because they could not understand why Amenhotep IV's kingdom was so Uh, poor in uh, soldiers and slaves and uh, possessions. She continues, Is it likely that while practicing sun worship, only one form of idolatry, Amenhotep would have raised everything, risked everything, by offending the powerful priests who at that time, according to the Times history, were, quote, able to triumph over even royalty by their wealth, unquote? Would he have risked something like that? I don't think so. Doesn't make any sense. That would be cutting his own throat if he did that. Clearly, the Egyptologists have misunderstood this time period and making assumptions because they don't know that this is the time of the Exodus, which explains everything. History relates that Amenhotep closed the temples of the Egyptian gods and even proscribed the word gods in the plural. Now, I would say that being the pharaoh of the Exodus, the priests would have looked down on him tremendously as a failure. Now, maybe because of this, and, and he believed in their gods, and their gods failed him, mutual failure here, that there was a split between Amenhotep IV and the Egyptian priests. That, to me, is more likely than him simply adopting a completely new religion. Okay, so let's continue. And this is uh, Mrs. Sidney Bristow's uh, opinion here. 
It seems far more likely that the priests tried to hide from posterity what Amenhotep's religion really was, just as they caricatured his personal appearance, representing him and his family upon the monuments as abnormal creatures, worshipping a grotesque sun which stretches down long arms to receive their offering. So, I could see Amenhotep IV rejecting the god of the Egyptian priests because that, that god did not protect him. Dr. Hole conjectures that the Amenhotep was degenerate in appearance and ordered the Egyptian sculptors to depict him as such. He writes, quote, Quite possibly the king developed an insane admiration for his own degenerating body. I don't think so, folks. And Beck, the sculptor, and the courtiers had to pander to this perverted idea of beauty. This perversion contrasts strangely with the lofty character of the king's religious and philosophical ideas, unquote. No, he's absolutely wrong. There was a split between the king and the priests because their god, whatever they called him at the time, failed. Dr. Hall's conjecture is surely disqualified by the fact that not only Amenhotep, but also Amenhotep's wife, children, and courtiers are depicted as degenerates. Why? Because the priests ordered such degeneration in their sculpture. The love of truth with which Amenhotep is credited could hardly have allowed that. A beautiful head, see frontispiece, believed to be a portrait of Amenhotep, has lately been excavated at Tel El Amarna, not only showing that he was really what he was really like and how cruelly he was caricatured, but also showing what good work those priestly sculptors could produce if they chose, okay? It all depends on how they want to depict you. It's just like uh, uh, we're all white supremacists, right? The Times History says, quote, The Egyptian priests were the sculptors and painters of those days, the draftsmen, masons, and scribes. Okay? So, uh, knowing all these things, and the false assumptions of the Egyptologists about the true history and their denial of biblical history now is coming to the forefront, proving how wrong the secular Egyptologists have been. Uh, continuing, uh, it's hard to make out the page numbers here. Anyway, the uh, open, uh, open to page 23, I believe. The power of handing down the record of Egyptian of Egypt was therefore entirely in their hands. Can we believe what they have told us? I think not. These are pagan priests after all, and they were terribly disappointed with uh, the whole Exodus scenario. And well, they blamed Amenhotep, and Amenhotep blamed them. In either case, their God failed them. Whatever else Amenhotep's religion is said to have been, all, all writers agree that it was monotheistic, the worship of one God. His motto seemed to have been, quote, life in truth or living in the truth. And the following lines are ascribed to him, quote, how manifold are thy works, thy, they are hidden from us. O thou God, whose power no other possesseth, thou didst create the earth according to thy desires, unquote. Hall, page 2307. So maybe Amenhotep had a change of heart after he saw how Yahweh had destroyed his kingdom on behalf of the Israelites. Professor Seis says of Amenhotep, quote, forsaking the worship of Amen of Thebes, of Ra, of Heliopolis, of Tha, of Memphis, he professed himself the devoted adorer of the solar disk. So 
he shifted from the old religion to worship of the sun. The one sun. Not S-O-N, S-U-N. That Amenhotep adored the solar disk is evidently what the Egyptian priests wanted future generations to believe. Their grotesque drawings upon the monuments as well as priestly inscriptions were calculated to give that impression, but surely the evident connection with the Jewish monotheism noticed by Egyptologists points rather to the possibility that his religion, so hated by the priests, was the Hebrew religion? Again, as I just suggested, he may have adopted this religion upon watching how the God of Moses (laughs) and Aaron conquered his kingdom, especially since the Hebrew religion would account as nothing else could do, not only for his allowing the Hebrews to conquer Palestine, but for everything that is known about him. So, Mrs. Sidney Bristow is arguing here that not only after after witnessing the destruction of Egypt at the hands of Yahweh, did he become a believer in Yahweh, but he had a hands-off policy toward the Israelites. Whoa! Who'd have thunk it? History is being revealed thanks to this book and thanks to recent archaeological discoveries. Professor Breasted describes him as, quote, a brave soul undauntedly facing the momentum of immemorial traditions that he might disseminate ideas far beyond and above the capacity of his age to understand, unquote. (laughs) Well, that's a really great speculation, but I think he changed his religion because he saw the power of Yahweh firsthand from his book, History of Egypt. Yet the Egyptian priests have successfully willed us to believe that it was only some slight change in the worship of the sun which Amenhotep IV tried to establish in Egypt. Another Egyptologist writes, quote, The faith of the patriarchs is the lineal ancestor of the Christian faith, but the creed of Akhenaten is its isolated prototype. Well, I wouldn't say prototype. It's an example. Because remember, Moses went to his father, uh, father-in-law, Jethro, where he relearned the name of Yahweh and went back into Egypt knowing the name of the one and only God, Yahweh. But of course, the Israelites had forgotten that name because they had been slaves for 400 years. One might believe that Almighty God had for a moment revealed himself to Egypt and had been more clearly, though more momentarily, interpreted than ever he was in Syria or Palestine before the time of Christ. <laughs> I got to quote this again. This is a, a tremendous speculation here. Another Egyptologist writes, quote, The faith of the patriarchs is the lineal ancestor of the Christian faith, but the creed of Akhenaten is its isolated prototype. No, it's an isolated example. Well, and it was hardly practiced in Egypt. It's just that Amenhotep IV adopted it uh, out of uh, awe. Fear and awe. One might believe that Almighty God had for a moment revealed himself to Egypt and had been more clearly, though more momentarily, interpreted than ever he was in Syria or Palestine before the time of Christ. What a speculation. Weigal, Akhenaten, pages 101 and 136. One of Amenhotep's hymns so closely resembles the 104th Psalm that Mr. Weigal says, quote, It becomes... (laughs) 
necessary to ask whether both Akhenaten's hymn and this Hebrew psalm were derived from a common source, or whether Psalm 104 is derived from the Pharaoh's original poem. Of course, the, it's the former. So, And of course, remember, this was the land of Joseph. The land of Joseph. And we did a, an earlier report suggesting that uh, Manasseh, was instrumental in uh, formulating Paleo-Hebrew and recording uh, the books of the Bible in his own hand. Continuing, As I hope to prove later, the Egyptian priests' method of falsifying the history of their country was to mix up truth with fiction, as we see the Jews doing today. If in Amenhotep IV's writings, therefore, we find pagan tendencies, it is not surprising In spite of all the priestly efforts to deceive us, the inevitable conclusion seems to be that it was the Hebrew religion which which he upheld. Okay, and I think we can speculate the reason he upheld it was because of fear and awe. Professor Lenormand, in his Ancient History of the East, writes, quote, There are curious resemblances between the external forms of Israelitish worship in the desert and those revealed by the monuments of Tel El Amarna. He adds that some of the sacred furniture, such as the table of showbread described in the book of Exodus, is seen in the representations of Amenhotep's worship and says, had not the Hebrews come some connected with the strange attempt in the imperfect monotheism of Amenhotep? Yes, they did. Dr. Hall writes, quote, The young reformer proclaimed that the whole pantheon of Egypt was a fiction and that only one deity existed. Again, Tribute to Yahweh, who conquered his father's land. Naturally, Amenhotep was hated by the priests of Ammon, whose wealth and power depended upon the rites and ceremonies connected with their gods. And of course, we see here the priests were very wealthy because the priests had their own source of income, namely the prostitution racket. that was going on as all ancient priests and uh, temples had ongoing, except Israelite temples, the prostitution and the, uh, what do you call it, the the traveling salesmen that wandered through Egypt and other countries would stop at these houses of prostitution and pay for their services to the priests. And these priests therefore became bankers. Bank of England, anybody? That's how they began. They used prostitutes to bribe politicians of England and to uh, pay Cromwell to invade Britain after the Jews had been expelled from there, and Cromwell promptly let them back in. See how banking and temple prostitution go together? Okay. The young reformer proclaimed that the whole pantheon of Egypt was a fiction and that only one god existed. Naturally, Amenhotep was hated by the priests of Ammon, whose wealth and power depended upon the rites and ceremonies connected with their gods. When Amenhotep's tomb was discovered in 1907, the Times correspondent wrote, quote, The tomb had been disturbed, but not by plunderers. Some devotees of the god Ammon had entered the tomb, but merely for the purpose of blotting out the accursed name of the heretic, unquote. Now we understand all this history. The, the Egyptologists have always assumed that Amenhotep and his father and, uh, and grandfather were devout worshippers of the one God, which would obviously be Yahweh.
but they they did this under you know fear and awe, not out of respect and belief. So let's continue. The priestly plot has not quite hoodwinked modern science, according to the Times correspondent, and this is August third, nineteen o seven. Experts have discovered that the mummy found in Amenhotep's tomb is that of a younger man than Amenhotep is believed to have been at the time of his death. The correspondent writes, quote, It will remain to be explained how another man came to be placed in a tomb bearing his, Amenhotep's name only, and containing many objects which belonged to him or had been given to him by his mother. Unquote. Okay, the priests hated Amenhotep so much that they broke into the tomb, probably took out his mummy and destroyed it, and substituted another person. The inco- oh, it reminds me of the Kennedy assassination <laughs> and uh, the substitution of Officer Tippett in the, in the casket, which was sent back to Washington. The, incongru- sorry, the incongruity of the fact that the mummy found in Amenhotep's tomb wears emblems of the religion which Amenhotep had discarded has been noticed by Mr. Weigall, that that fact in itself is surely enough to raise suspicions that the mummy is not that of Amenhotep. So they placed into the tomb someone who did worship uh, Amen, the old Egyptian god. After describing one of those pagan emblems, Mr. Weigel says, quote, It is somewhat surprising that the body of Akhenaten Amenhotep IV, who was so averse to all old customs, should have this royal talisman upon it. Yeah, it was put there by the priests. These suspicions, combined with the priests' caricatures of Amenhotep upon the monuments of the pagan names and illusions, which clash so oddly with the otherwise purely monotheistic sentiments of Amenhotep's writings, point, pointing to their being priestly interpolations, as well as positive proofs of the priest's system of deception, which I offer later, support my hypothesis that the priests of Ammon determined to disguise from posterity the true personality and religion of their hated heretic king. Two likely reasons exist for Amenhotep's adoption of the Hebrew religion. The first being that his mother, from whom he is said to have imbibed it, was a Hebrew or Aramean princess. And I believe that's Nefertiti. The Amarna tablets show that Queen T, T-H-I spelled here, Amenhotep's mother, the fair-haired, blue-eyed queen of the Egyptian monuments, if you go to Egypt, or just watch any documentary of Egypt and the, the rows of pharaohs and queens, 40 or 50 of them on both sides of the row, they all show Aryan faces, every last one of them, folks. This fact is hidden from you because King Tut was a Hebrew, and so are all of the uh, Egypt uh, Aryan Hamites, bar none. Aryan Hamites. Anyway, okay, that the Queen T, Amenhotep's mother, the fair-haired, blue-eyed queen of the Egyptian monuments, came from northern Syria, which seemed to have been inhabited from the first by the descendants of Shem, the ancestor of the Hebrews. Queen T was the sister of Dusrata, king of Armenia, and Mitanni, about whom I shall have much to say later. 
Okay, so we're seeing that Mrs. Sidney uh, Bristow's account of the matter is right on the money and is now being confirmed by Egyptology and, of course, real Christian scholarship. His land was undoubtedly inhabited by the Hebrew race, yeah, the Israelites. The Hyksos, who, according to Dr. Hall, were Hebrews, came from Dizrata's land to conquer Egypt many centuries before. Okay, so, uh, good question whether the uh, Mitanni were descended from Eber or, for, or, or directly from Shem. So they may have been, and they were also uh, goat herders, uh, sheep herders, etc., which were despised by the Egyptians. So it could be that the Hyksos were actually kinsmen of the Hebrews, but not directly Hebrews, or certainly not Israelites. Okay. Continuing. Abraham came from Dizrata's country, and Jacob's two wives came from there. Rachel may have had fair hair and blue eyes like Queen T, for they both came from Dizrata's land. The ark is believed to have rested upon the mountains of Armenia, which is part of Dizrata's kingdom. Okay, and uh, so we see everything is coming into place. We know, again, from the coinage and the statuary of the ancient Mesopotamian lands that all of their kings and queens have Aryan features proving that they are descendants of Noah, as we all should know. Okay? So, according to the Bible, the Israelites left Egypt about 40 years before that conquest. That is the conquest of Palestine that took place under Amenhotep IV's reign. So, all this history is falling into place. Amenhotep's father, Amenhotep III, who is said to have lived about 50 years must therefore have been alive at the time of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Okay, so Amenhotep III was the one who, to, upon whom the shock and awe of Yahweh was administered. His father Tutmosis IV was also alive at that time, for his father, he and his father must have been the pharaoh of the exodus, or he or his father must have been the pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, they both could have been alive at that time because often when the pharaoh was getting too old to assume or continue reigning, his son would have taken his place, but they were both alive at the same time. That's possible. Well, so one or both of those kings must have witnessed the miracles performed by Moses in the name of the God of the Hebrews. Those awe-inspiring events explain, as nothing else can do, the evidence found upon monuments that both Amenhotep's father and grandfather had tried to change the religion of Egypt. This explains why the religion of Egypt was being changed by them. According to the Times history, the last kings of the 18th dynasty were distinguished by the name of heretic kings. Mr. Weigall, page 11, writes, quote, in the reign of Tutmose for the, the fourth, we reach a period of history in which certain religious movements are to be observed, which become more apparent in the time of his son Amenhotep III and his grandson Akhenaten Amenhotep IV. And Tutmotis IV did not altogether approve of the political character of the Amman priesthood. Unquote. Now remember, 
Joseph was vizier of Egypt. A couple of generations earlier. So, those pharaohs would have certainly picked up some of the Hebrew religion. And in the story we did of Joseph and his wife, Azanath, she is described in the story of uh, Joseph and Azanath as a fair-haired, blonde, blue-eyed woman. That it was religion and not politics which caused Tutmosis IV to disapprove of the priests of Amon is my conviction. If the religious change began in his reign, he was, I maintain, either the pharaoh of the Exodus or that monarch's son. Very good. We're almost done with chapter 2. Only the signs and wonders recorded in the book of Exodus, which culminated in the catastrophe in the Red Sea, can adequately account for the fact that the last kings of the 18th dynasty turned away from the priests of Ammon, and that Amenhotep IV finally revolted openly against them and their feudal practices, just like in Haiti, the voodoo practice in Haiti, when a Christian mission at the last time the hurricane destroyed Haiti. Christian ministers from America and, uh, you know, gifts from Americans and from around the world, uh, you know, poured in to help the Haitian people. And one of the Haitian voodoo priests said to a Christian missionary, what are you doing here? We don't believe in your God. And the Christian missionary said, well, your God doesn't seem to be working very well, does he? An Egyptian inscription exists in which Amenhotep is made to say, speaking of his father and grandfather by their, quote, personal names, Namaara and Menkepfura, the words of the priests, more evil are they than those things which King Nebmara heard. More evil are they than those things which Menkepfura heard. Weigal, page 100. Okay, so we see the origin of Mystery Babylon was in Egypt, where the banker priests of the Egyptian religion began what we know today as the fractional reserve banking system, which was perfected in Babylon. And we know the Babylonian Talmud is Judaism, and the Jews have perfected Mystery Babylon, the the, uh, fractional reserve banking system, absolutely perfected it. And so few Christians and uh, and even secular people understand that this mystery religion began in Egypt under these banker priests. And it's told to us in the book of Revelation, it has had eight incarnations, the first seven being Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, the Roman Catholic Church, Napoleon, and finally the eighth being the one world government under the Rothschild banking establishment. Okay, this shows the, the power of the priests in those days. Let's continue. The, an Egyptian inscription exists in which Amenhotep is made to say, speaking of his father and grandfather by their personal names, okay, the words of the priests were evil. The strongest proof that Amenhotep's religion was that of the Hebrews is the effect it had upon his actions. The god of the Hebrews had forbidden any other gods. Amenhotep tried to abolish the idolatry of Egypt, closed the temples, turned his back upon the powerful priests, and retired to Tel El Amarna, where he built a new capital city 
in which to institute the worship of one God, whether they called him Yahweh, I don't know. The God of the Hebrews had promised that Palestine should belong to the Israelites. Amenhotep withdrew his troops and allowed the Israelites to conquer Palestine. Well said, Mrs. Sidney Bristow. That's the only logical conclusion. The God of the Hebrews had announced through Noah that the Canaanites were to be servants unto Shem's descendants. Amenhotep allowed the Israelites, who were Shem's descendants, to make slaves of the Canaanites and to draw from them the revenues which had once been his. But he had no power to collect those anyway because he had no army. I love it when history begins to make sense. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, so uh, Hyksos, and uh, there's always been disagreement as to who the Hyksos actually were. Uh, Swamp Fox, first let me quote the Swamp Fox. First uh, Chronicles 2.55, And the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Tirathites, the Shimathites, and the Sukathites, these are the Kenites that came from Hemath, the father of the house of Rechab. Now, Rechab is, uh, I don't think it can be equated with Rahab, the uh, Ephraimite. So um, those may be, uh, and apparently uh, the the Canaanites did have scribes. In fact, the uh, Israelites hired Canaanite scribes, Edomite scribes, which they never should have done, but they did. And, uh, you know, this is how the Canaanites uh, became very, very familiar with the internal politics of Israel, just as the Jews are always scribes and advisors to our people throughout history. Hyksos, circa 1600, 15th dynasty of Egyptian kings called shepherd kings from Greek Hyksos, from Egyptian explained variously as Hikshasu, ruler of nomads or Hekakose, chief of foreign lands, okay? So, Mrs. Sidney Bristow argues that the Hyksos were Aramaeans, mistaken, uh, they're, not, they're not Israelites, but a related people, okay? And Swamp Fox also says, could be sons of Enoch from before the flood. Yeah, because the, the Canaanites were there, in that land before the flood and after the flood. All right, so there's all kinds of evidence coming together here proving that uh, the reason why those three heretic kings were called heretic kings is because they rebelled against the Egyptian gods. Chapter 3, with about 10 minutes left, the problem of the Amorites. According to Major Condor's and other writers' interpretations of the Amarna tablets, Amenhotep's behavior was extraordinarily inconsistent, for according to them, while he allowed the Israelites to conquer southern Palestine, he allowed Amorites to conquer northern Palestine, that is to say, Phoenicia. Major Condor writes, quote, Now, I don't know if it was called Phoenicia yet at this time. Okay, I think it was just called Tyre and Sidon. The, the, the term Phoenician came later. Uh, I'll have to look that up. But in any case, that's what people call it today. And these historians called it then. Okay, so namely Phoenicia. Palestine, now why would he allow the Amorites to conquer northern Palestine? Major Condor writes, quote, 
The Amorites conquered all Phoenicia and besieged Tyre. That's on page 5. The Amorites, according to the 10th chapter of Genesis, were one branch of the Canaanites. They were among the people whom the Israelites had been commanded to drive out or destroy. Amenhotep's religion and consequent sympathy with the Israelites can well explain this, his allowing Joshua to conquer Palestine, but that he should have allowed his Canaanite subjects to destroy his important seaport cities in Phoenicia can have no explanation. The Amorites, although the tablets are supported, are supposed to show them attacking Tyre, were, according to the Bible, fighting under the king of Tyre against Joshua's army, Joshua 9, verse 3. At first sight, there seems to be good grounds for Major Gonder's theory, although it suggests a most improbable situation, namely that the Canaanites, regardless of their common danger from the invasion, invading Israelites, were fighting among themselves. For the following sentences prove that people called Amorites or the sons of Abdesherah, and who are said to have come from the land of the Amorites, were conquering Phoenicia. Well, didn't the Israelites conquer the land of the Amorites first and then went into the rest of Canaan land? Okay, so these Canaanites who describe these invaders as Amorites are coming from the land of the Amorites have been falsely equated by historians with Israelites. Okay, or they didn't realize that these so-called Amorites are in fact Israelites. Abdesherah was the letter show the Amorite leader as Major Condor calls him. Okay, so Abdesherah, A-B-D-A-S-H-E-R-A-H. Who is Abdesherah? Rabadi, the ruler of a Phoenician city, writes to Amenhotep, quote, All who are in the land of the Amorites have gathered, and I am to be attacked, unquote. So recall now, this is the time period where Joshua and the Israelite tribes were invading all of Canaan land. So who is Abdesherah? He writes again, who is Abdesherah? A slave, a dog? But send reinforcements, okay? So the uh, the letter uh, of uh, requesting reinforcements, okay, they were referring to some leader obviously a leader of the Israelites. And, quote, But Abdesherah has conquered beyond the land of the Amorites. Also, since the time of your father, the city of Sidon has submitted to the occupation by his allies. The lands are for the men of blood, the Haberi, the Saxons. So now there is none who is a friend to me. Let the king regard the message of his servant, unquote. It seems obvious to me that Abdesherah is none other than Joshua. The Canaanite rulers seem puzzled by the state of affairs. One of them writes to Amenhotep, the sons of Abdesherah, the slave, the dog, have pretended that the cities of the government of the king are given to them. They have been captured by them, by the Israelites. Our cities, will you not fortify your city? I am sincere, but the covenant is mocked, and no soldiers are heard of, unquote. Egypt is not defending her tributaries. The Canaanite rulers were perhaps not more puzzled than the translators have been. <laughs> Professor Petrie remarks that at, the t- at that time, the politics were complex, indeed. 
you know, they don't realize that this was the time of the Israelite invasion of all of Canaan land. The Amarna tablets throw light upon this puzzling situation, although a bewildering light it seems upon the surface to be, so much so that the translators may have been blinded by it. The astonishing fact disclosed by the tablets being that the people called Amorites who were conquering Phoenicia were being helped by the Habiri. Would that be true? No, the Bible tells us that the uh, Israelites conquered the Amorites first. As the Habiri were admitted to be Israelites when attacking other parts of Palestine, they must have been the Israelites when attacking Phoenicia. Amen. In this case, it looks as if the Israelites, although they were attacking the Canaanites of some parts of Palestine, had made an alliance with the Canaanites who were attacking Phoenicia. I don't think so. That's just an assumption people make. No wonder Professor Petrie says that the politics in Palestine were complex at that time. The Amarna tablets leave no doubt about it. The Habiri and people called Amorites were both attacking Phoenicia. I think they're just confusing the Israelites with the two names. The following sentences prove this. A Phoenician ruler... Now remember, before uh, uh, that uh, the king of Tyre at least in the days of Solomon, probably in the days of David also, was a Yahweh believer. So maybe this Yahweh believer was a descendant of the Israelites who conquered what's called Phoenicia. Anyway, let's read this. what this quote says. The Haberi take possession of all lands. All lands fall away to the Haberi. Professor Petrie gives another letter from the ruler of Gibal, who writes, Abdeshera has collected the Haberi against Shigata and Ambi. Your fortress is now in the power of the Haberi, the Israelites. So either, we have a choice here, either Joshua did ally himself with uh, some Amorites, but I don't think that was the case. I think uh, the Amorites were totally conquered by the Israelites and didn't need their help. And it would have been a, a violation of Yahweh's law to make a covenant with uh, with uh, Canaanites to invade the rest of Canaan land. Of course, our leaders have done such things. I don't think Joshua would have done so. Anyway, Abdesherah, who is said to have collected the Habiri, was, as we have seen, the leader of the Amorites. So she concludes, he must then have commanded both the Habiri and the Amorite. No, that's there's no way that Abdeshera, an Amorite, would have been the leader of the Israelite invasion. So there's obviously some confusion here. Continuing, she says, This strange alliance of Amorites and Heberi, which I hope to explain later, helps to show at least why Amenhotep allowed the quote-unquote Amorites to conquer Phoenicia, while he allowed the Heberi to conquer the rest of Palestine. If, as this letter shows, the Amorites of the tablets and the Heberi were allies, Amenhotep could not well have allowed the Haberi to conquer Phoenicia without allowing the Amorites to do so too. So I, th- I think there's just confusion on the part of these Egyptologists as to who these Amorites really were. Okay, with only a couple of minutes left, failing to solve the problem of this unil- un- unnatural alliance, Major Condor and Professor Petrie apparently try to explain away the Haberi who were helping the Amorites to conquer Phoenicia. Unluckily for the success of their explanations, they differ. Professor Petrie says that the Habiri 
mentioned upon the tablets cannot have been the Israelites, although he says some people believe they were, because according to all accounts, the Israelites attacked in the south of Palestine, and the Haberi of the tablets attacked the north. Well, who are the Haberi? The Hebrews, okay? <laughs> all right. Major Condor says the exact opposite, namely that the Haberi did not attack in the north of Palestine, that they only attacked in the south. He writes, the Haberi are never mentioned except in the south near Jerusalem. Okay. And she concludes, their opinions disagree again about the word Haberi. Professor Petrie says that the word cannot mean Hebrews, that it must mean Confederates. He gives no linguistic reason for this opinion, which is shared by Professor Sace. Major Condor says, on the contrary, that on linguistic grounds, the word Haberi cannot mean Confederates, as Professor Petrie tells us it does. As we have seen, philologists recognize the identity of the words Habiri and Hebrews, and that is, in fact, what the word means. So, folks, uh, here's a real teaser for you to go and look up this, uh, this book online. I provided the link in the chat room. Let me copy it and post it again. This book by Mrs. Sidney Bristow clears up all of the mess, the historical and Egyptological mess that has been upon us for all of these centuries. Clears up why Amenhotep IV changed from the the pantheon of Egyptian gods to the one God. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Take care. Yahweh bless everybody.